Hey everyone, welcome to The Sun and the Moon, a show co-hosted by myself, Luna Whitcomb at Luna All Day, and Alexandria Irons, Queen of the Sun Crown, and tonight we have Brandon Rust. Welcome! Thanks. Uh, you should turn your mic up uh, a little bit, so because you're a little bit low, so to make sure everybody can hear you really good, you want to adjust that level a little bit. Me or Luna? You. Okay. Yeah, you sound really good now. That works. Just talk louder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hey, I appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, for any of your viewers who don't know who I am or who aren't familiar, uh, my name is Brandon Rust. I am the owner of Bokashi Earthworks, and I am a, uh, an agronomist. I specialize in cannabis agronomy, and I also uh, kind of created this biological crop steering method of controlled cultivation uh for cannabis so yeah i've heard uh, a lot I'm excited about, about the it. biological crop steering um can you tell us a little bit more about that like what does it mean to biologically crop steer a cannabis so what we're doing is we're using uh model organisms that produce certain metabolites which cause a biochemical re response they elicit either a, like a plant defense response or elicit some type of biochemical response like a micronutrient chelation through sediophore production that can be replicated and it can also be uh, mapped and shown on data uh, an example of this would be using a consortium of microorganisms like Bacillus subtilis and Trichoderma for the sediophore production, which chelates micronutrients, specifically iron, which is uh, very prone to oxidation. So it, uh, in it, the, the ferric form of iron is the available form that plants can utilize. Uh, and to get that certain ion, what has to happen is the pH would have to be really low, usually below 5.5. Um, otherwise, it oxidizes into oxidized iron, Fe3+, and so it's not available. But what happens is with these two um, bacteria, this bacteria and fungus, they work synergistically to create metabolites that chelate that iron. Um, trichoderma has a really high affinity for iron. And so it's one of the mechanisms that works to both outcompete pathogens, but also to create soluble iron in solution. And so you can see it as a measurable result on a saturated paste test, um, uh, versus a control. So if I were to inoculate with bacillus subtilis and trichoderma versus an uninoculated control, I would see that the iron solubility with the with what was inoculated is is higher so what we're doing is we're using certain type of model organisms to elicit plant responses at certain times of growth to maximize the genetic potential and the output of that system are these products that um you make and sell these consortiums of, of uh, biology yeah so i typically use like the micro plus which is a consortium also known as uh effective microorganisms it has the same species but i culture them myself from the spore uh, and it's a consortium of different bacillus species as a pseudomonas species which is a purple non-sulfur bacteria 
and a ferment of fungi. They work synergistically to do things like outcompete pathogens, create metabolites like phosphatase that solubilize the phosphorus anion from parent phosphorus mater uh, material in soil. So uh, making plant available phosphorus, uh, again, like we talked about the sediophore production. So different organisms kind of have model metabolites similar to similar to the way that cannabis is a model organism for the production of cannabinoids and terpenes we have different types of uh, microbes whether they are bacteria or fungus that are kind of model organisms for the production of metabolites and so when we're looking at metabolite production we're looking at kind of the biochemical reactions or uh, within the soil itself or the, the responses that it elicit in plants. Uh, and an example is uh, like phytohormone production, like cytokinin, which will help with uh, cellular uh, division and it can expedite that process. If you have a model organism that is like a bacillus species is a model organism for endol three acetic acid production which is oxen right um that organism will essentially offer benefits beyond just the phytohormones that it's producing but also the the other things that we just talked about but that's so we're looking at organisms that have the potential to do multiple tasks that have multiple metabolites and like what are those model organisms when can we inoculate to, to elicit that response and then being able to replicate that and see it on data. That's what biological crop steering is all about. So you're introducing and then you continue to introduce the specific species at that specific time to create the metabolites the uh, that open up you know, different or, or make uh, different compounds, different nutrients more readily available for that specific growth phase. Are you introducing uh, the food source for each specific bacterial uh, species as well? So this is kind of a two-part question. When we're talking about modified growing mixes and the soilless medias that are typically used in cannabis production, the amount of organic matter that's associated within that system is typically adequate enough to be able to proliferate in abundance of microorganisms. So you're going to be able to proliferate those microbes in a larger quantity and abundance than, let's say, an agronomic soil that's typically, if we're looking at ag soils, our carbon content or organic matter content of those soils is typically less than one and a half percent. One percent is on average for for uh, uh, ag soils that have been cultivated on continuously. Uh, when I see ag soils that are two and a half percent, I get excited. When I see four to five percent. Um, I know that the production capacities of those ag soils are outstanding. Um, when we're talking about organic matter and carbon, they're synonymous. And there are a bunch of different types of processes that are mediated uh, biochemically by biology. And one of those is nitrogen fixation. Uh, another one is um, the release of the phosphate anion from parent appetite material. We also have uh, the sulfate reduction, uh, sulfur reduction to the sulfate. And then we also have the uh, iron, which uh, oftentimes, depending on the soil type, uh, we need the sediophore production from uh, those organisms to be able to solubilize that iron. 
Um, so those are things that are highly biologically mediated that we're looking at in these systems. But it's it's a it's different because we don't need to necessarily add like a food source. Like a lot of people would say, oh, look, can we add a prebiotic? Can we add and you can, and what you'll see is an explosion um in a certain type of biology for a short period of time until that food source is is consumed. Um, and then so it can help, but typically uh like with what I'm doing. When I'm inoculating uh, with, like, say, Micro Plus, for instance, those things have already been solid-state fermented, and they've already converted all of that carbon into metabolites, and then they've created endospores. And so when they get introduced back into that system, they can then proliferate on all the organic matter that's already in that system while delivering all of those things like the uh, acetic acid, the lactic acid, uh, the phytohormones and the enzymes that those microbes were producing naturally during their metabolisms while they were, you know, during that fermentation process. Cool. Yeah, I have your um, website pulled up here and I'm looking at some of the spores that you sell. Um, very interesting. I guess uh, a lot of cannabis growers are doing this without actually calling it, you know, I, I've never just, I've just never considered biological crop sharing, but I love that. Um, there we go. There's the micro plus microbial inoculant. And it's um, on sale right now. All right, everybody, you got the link, check it out. Um, yeah. I mean like using like bacillus megatarium or something, right. That yeah. produces phosphatases, the enzyme that helps to all utilize phosphorus and making yep. it more available. So we're doing these things, but you're explaining it. So, well, so I can give you, I can give you an example for that specific organism. So it's a model organism for studies uh, as far as a bacillus species goes, but it's not a model organism for a that actual production of those secondary metabolites. So there's other types of bacillus bacteria that will actually do that more efficiently, but that is a bacteria that is commonly studied because mm -hmm. it's such a large organism that it can be viewed um, uh, under microscopes and it can be cultured so easily uh, in, in laboratory settings. So what are your recommendations for um, your, I mean, your microbial inputs for their specific and why, like what yep. reasoning for, Let's go through those. So there's a couple of different reasons why I would use certain microbes at different times. So when we're looking at nitrogen fixation, that's kind of a really complicated um, process. It typically happens in, in three, it happens in three different ways, right? So we have nitrogen fixation. We want that for, to build biomass, correct? Right. Nitrogen, it's going to build proteins. It's responsible for chlorophyll production. It's responsible for a bunch of other different processes internally in the plant. Now, if we have an organism that's able to take atmospheric nitrogen and convert that into ammonia, a plant available form, then we don't have to add as much fertilizer. Or if we have microorganisms that can solubilize and break down organic matter that contain nitrogen in the soil, that's another aspect of the nitrogen cycle. So we have bacteria that are taking atmospheric nitrogen, and then we have bacteria that are cycling carbon that contains nitrogen and liberating that nitrogen from that organic material. 
Now, um, if we're talking about, you know, putting on biomass, like I said, we want nitrogen fixation happening. Typically, this happens in anaerobic soils. And the reason is because the enzyme that they produce, these nitrogen fixing bacteria, which is called nitrogenase, <clears throat> it's high, it's made out of a molybdenum in an iron protein complex. It's highly oxidative. So it's very sensitive to oxidation. So it functions only in anaerobic conditions. One, unless it's happening inside of a root node, which you see on legume plants where you'll see nodes and those they're actually endophytic at that point where they're fixing nitrogen endophytically with inside of the actual plant root. And the reason they do that is to protect it from oxidation. And then two, you have free living soil microorganisms that can fix atmospheric nitrogen because they're creating biofilms and they're able to protect the nitrogenase that they're producing. That's, that's uh, converting the atmospheric nitrogen within the biofilms themselves. And so there's different organisms that will produce uh, and do those different things. Uh, and so like we could have like a pseudomonas bacteria that could be endophytically uh, fixing nitrogen, or we could have something like an azobacter that's, uh, that's doing legume fixation where it's internal inside of the plant, or we could have something like a cyanobacteria that's doing free living soil nitrogen fixation because of the uh, ability to create those biofilms, right? So those are really important uh, factors that would be important in veg. Being able to inoculate and get those types of things early on can help with nitrogen fixation and liberation of, of nitrogen from organic matter. Another thing is going to be what we talked about with iron, right? So the sediophore production from a lot, a lot of microorganisms. Iron is a photosynthetic nutrient, and it is oftentimes what I've seen countless times looking at data, one of the most limiting factors when it comes to plant nutrition. And it's because of its highly reactive nature. Now, the ferric form of iron is so highly oxidative that it really only will be uh, soluble in its soluble form at pHs below 5.5. And now we don't run our soils that low. We're typically running these things between 6.3 and 6.8 pH in a, in a soil system because that's optimal pH for everything else to function, right? So introducing microbial consortiums like the Bacillus subtilis and the Trichoderma, which are both model organisms for sediophore production based off of the science that's been presented over decades, we add those during the veg cycle. We can even uh, not, we can even do foiler applications that will help with things like powdery mildew and botrytis suppression. So they work as multifunctional microorganisms, but we're looking at those as an organism that's going to help with iron solubility because it doesn't matter how much iron sulfate I put into my system. It's going to be, it's going to oxidize into its ferric form. Now the plant will pump out protons in the form of hydrogen to reduce the rhizosphere pH to help solubilize some of those insoluble compounds that it may need, but that takes energy and it also takes resources away from the plant. Um, 
So having those types of relationships that are beneficial with a fungus and a bacteria, right? The fungus trichoderma is a model organism. Can it can work endophytically? It can penetrate the roots, just like arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, and still have the same type of relationships where it's exchanging nutrients for carbon. However, it's better uh, it's better suited to do some of the functions that those mycorrhizal fungi may not be suited to do. And then they can also create synergistic relationships with that bacillus subtilis where the fungal filaments that are growing out of the trichoderma, the bacillus bacteria will actually colonize the, all of those fulfill those filaments. And so like when people are talking about like fungal versus bacterial dominated soils, a lot of times doesn't make sense to me because I don't, there's no literature on the effects of fungal versus bacterial dominated soils. And usually the biomass if we're talking about biomass, we would have to like find a measurable amount and say, okay, this is a fungal dominated soil and this is why, and these are the measurable results. And it would probably be a measure of the metabolite productions. But if we're looking at the amount of bacteria that are all, all also colonizing and working in synergy with these fungal filaments and this fungus, we have more bacteria as far as bacterial cells than there are fungus, but there may be more biomass of fungus than there is of bacteria because just simply because of the size right so these things are all working together and so you can like again eliciting certain responses that aren't just anecdotal but that you can see on data sets right because when you're coming to into a cultivation setting like for me as an agronomist and as a consultant i need to be able to show people this is how the data works and these are the data sets and this is how these types of um, relationships function in the system so so that's all super fucking fascinating to me. Um, I'm really curious. Do you feel like this system, this approach is biological crop steering is more effective in a potted soil or a bed of soil? So the difference between uh, a pot and a bed is going to be the sufficiency and balance that that soil can maintain as plants are pulling nutrition out of the system. So obviously a bed offers more volume of soil, so you're going to be able to maintain sufficiency and balance uh, and consistency a lot longer. However, it doesn't mean that you can't do something in a system that is smaller. It just means that you're going to have to do more maintenance. And usually with with my type of maintenance that means more agronomic data so more soil sampling so that way we can maintain sufficiency and balance in those smaller systems while still um, adding in the different types of microbials and plant nutrition and like kind of fertigation plants for the different stages of plant growth because i'm not just looking at i'm looking at different stages of growth what the plant needs at different times to be able to maximize the production and the quality because there's always this, there's like this miss miss uh understanding that organics are going to somehow potentially yield yield less than synthetics and it's just not true and you can re reduce your overhead you can reduce your inputs you can reduce your labor costs doing organics versus like a synthetic system and you can uh, increase your output. You just need to have a comprehensive understanding holistically of how things work, not just chemically, but bio, bio, biologically and, and physically as well. Because some of these things, when we're talking about physics versus chemistry versus biology, we're, we're talking about the exact same thing. We're just looking at it at a different scale, right? So these things are all the exact same thing. We just need to be 
um, kind of like there's a saying in um, in like you know magic uh, as above so below right mm -hmm. it's because systems in nature they mirror each other and you can take away a lot from one system it usually will replicate itself in another system and so you need to have a comprehensive understanding of that whole entire system as as a holistic uh you know entity essentially to be able to have the the, the to take the right approach I tell people that and they get scared. They're like, well, what? I need to know chemistry, physics, biology. I need to know all of that. I'm like, you don't need to be an expert in all of it, but having a broad understanding of how the world works is going to make you a better fucking grower, a human. It's going to make you healthier, your plants healthier. It's going to be, the world will be easier to interact with if you have a little bit of an understanding of this. So I really like that perspective. Um, do you sell trichoderma? I'm on your uh, micro. Well, I'm not here's the thing. Like so <clears throat> we are currently registering with the EPA and it's everything that I have has already been registered with the EPA. The issue is that with when it comes to like labeling compliance, whether it's EPA, USDA, it's really just about beer. It's the bureaucracy, mm -hmm. right? Because they they have they know that these things are safe. They have them on record being safe. But what I'll have to do is I'll have to buy somebody else's data that they spent, if I don't create my own data, which would cost, you know, a million dollars to do all these trials and stuff like this, I could do it myself. Or I could pay a company that has already registered the products for their efficacy data, which is what they want for registration. Mm -hmm. And that's going to cost a bunch of money too. So it might not cost me a million dollars, but it might cost me a hundred grand. So I'm not, I don't currently offer any of the products that are can that are used for like integrated pest management like pesticides or anything like that to the public okay all right yeah because i do have all the other products that i have are all registered so the micro plus is usda registered all of the amendments the smart carbon humate fertilizer all those other things are okay cool because i've been buying i do the foliar application of trichoderma and bacillus subtilis like regularly um, yep. especially for my outdoor and I would love to support you and your company, but let me know. So let me know when you got it available. Well, the, the bacillus subtilis and the trichoderma are going to be much easier to do because I don't have to list them as suppressing pathogens on the labeling. And so I can add them as a soil amendment. And so that that's much easier, but the things like the Bouveria bassiana, the Medhazarin, the Meditar harzanium, Anispole, the, uh, the bacillus thuringiensis, things like that, which are, you know, uh, bio pesticides, mm -hmm. those have to go, they don't have to be the, all of the stuff that I have, the strains have already been, been registered. I think some of them in like the seventies and stuff. So they've been registered for decades. It's just a monetary thing where it's like, you got to go pay a company to get their efficacy data. Okay. It that's why like the entomopathogenic fungi is so expensive then. It is. Online, yes. So the reason, the reason why that you're paying so much for those things is because no matter what company it is, they had to pay for that data. And they may have paid a million dollars. They may have pay, paid $2 million. It depends on what strain it was and what the company was. Because Big Ag holds patents on a lot of those and the registrations on a lot of those. And if they spent millions of dollars in research, they're going to make it unattainable for small people to be able to operate. The whole – and it's really interesting too because like uh, – the whole thing with like ag registration, it's not so much about safety as it is about 
money. generating <laughs> revenue. Yeah. Uh huh. Well, I, I want your opinion on the Isaria fumosa rosia strain versus your Bavaria bassiana for um, biological control. So I've only used the other um, maybe a couple of, of, of other times, but they work exactly with the same types of modes of metabolism. Uh, they cause white musketing disease in insects. Uh, the interesting thing is uh, the Bavaria bassiana has much more science information and you can see that it has different modes of action so it'll it'll act as a soil uh streptophyte it's uh i said that wrong it's because i'm high right now <laughs> uh, <I love> it. <laughs> so it, it has the ability to just proliferate on decaying organic matter in soil and it doesn't necessarily need to parasitize an insect to, to continue its reproductive growth. It can also create endophytic relationships with the plant where it's exchanging, um, uh, you know, metabolites for carbon that the plant is giving it. Plants basically feeding this organism. The plant is creating uh, defense compounds. So if it's working as an endophyte, that means that anything that goes to chew on the plant could possibly be parasitized. It also works as a plant uh, insect parasite to where it can it can basically um, parasitize an insect, you know, break down all its internal organs and then sporulate and create fruiting bodies and then release spores. And those spores can then become endophytic. They can live in decaying organic matter or they might land on other insects and become a parasite. So they have all these different modes in which they can proliferate um and so it's a really unique organism in that manner so it offers a, a you know biocontrol kind of protectant in different modes it has the direct mode of insect paras uh parasitation i don't know if that's even a word uh but it also offers uh the plant defense compounds through uh isr uh uh, systemic acquired resistance because it's producing um, the plant defense compounds. So it's kind of like a, one of those things that you're going to get a multiple mode of action from. Okay, cool. I, I use both, but I was just uh, wondering what, if you liked one over the other. Um, I've been playing around with the IPMO I just did a class with Chris Trump. So I've been trying to harness the natural because those products are just so expensive. Um, so yeah. I went out and I like tried to harvest or, you know, like harvest native and, and indigenous microbes. Well, that that's not what properties. you're going to want to do for insect pathogens. If you can get like, uh, like uh, Steve Reisner, potent ponics, when he was out in Thailand, he could go to a local market and go get a bunch of like crickets right because they'll use them for all different purposes so you go get kilos of just dead crickets or even live crickets right <laughs> uh so he's taking all these dead crickets he's grinding them up and he's using those as the carbohydrate and you know what's going to proliferate on those types of substances are model organisms that have chitosan production and uh or oh chitinase i'm sorry chitinase uh, which is an enzyme that it degrades chitin and insect shells are made out of chitin. So typically the organisms that are able to degrade chitin are the things that are going to be able to parasitize. And since they have these different modes of metabolism where they can feed off of decaying organic matter, like we just talked about, 
you can proliferate all those microorganisms in a substrate that's based off of insects to try to proliferate that type of microorganism. Yeah, exactly. That's so that's what I did. I did a bunch of insect frass and dead insect carcasses cooked with humic acid and rice and put it out there in an IMO collection box and then, you know, took it to the next level, but I haven't used it to see the efficacy. So I'm going to um, be playing I around wouldn't with that. Do any, I wouldn't do the rice. I would take okay. out that carbohydrate altogether and just do the insect because you're going to get a, a more efficacy, especially if you're trying to exploit native populations. Like it's a whole different world and it's a lot when it comes to natural farming and then being able to just implement something that that's, you know, um, that's a model organism that's just been created for a specific purpose is usually it takes more work, but also it's an investment. So if you don't have the proper area or location, if you don't own your own land, it's oftentimes not economical or convenient to do natural natural farming practices. Oh yeah, it's a lot of work. I just wanted to try it because people ask me all the time and I'm a huge fan of the entomopathogenic fungi using biocontrols. So we'll see. It's definitely, it was a lot of work. I, I agree with that. I don't know if it's worth it. Well, it, it can be worth it, especially if you have that skill set and you need it, right? Because if you didn't have any other options, then you know what you need to do to be able to survive when a whole shitload of grasshoppers are trying to eat all of your seed starts at the beginning yeah. of the season, you know? Luckily, I have friends like you. I can order some <laughs> products from and I don't have to capture them. <laughs> so, Brandon, are you not a big fan of uh, natural farming practices? Do you not? Are you not? No, I'm a huge fan of it. I'm a huge fan. And, <clears throat> but there's two, we have to look at a couple of different factors, right? Because, you know, I have a keychain here. I'm just going to show you. I have a lanyard on my keychain, and this is probably about 15 years old. It says it's a seedless keychain. Shout out to Seedless San Diego OB. That says fuck Monsanto on it. Now, but I'm not the kind of person that would want to see just big ag fail overnight. You know, and the reason why is because the replication, the, the, the replications of that would be enormous. What we would see is global famine. It would affect all of us. It would, it would devastate everything. The fact of the matter is that big ag exists and it's reduced starvation in the world. It has um, increased global prosperity, but it is also part of a manufactured system that came along with the industrial revolution that created centralized uh, powers that were based off of economic uh, economic prosperity in resources and, and, and the exploitation of resource. And so the big issue is that most people don't have the educational skill set to be able to farm naturally with their natural resources. And then there's also the, the fact that most land, the majority of land, I think there's only two to 3% of actual land out of the 30% of land that exists on this planet as a whole planet um, is actually arable for, for agriculture. You would have to add something in, into that. You would have to remediate that land and it would take, 
it takes a, a massive effort because regardless of whether we like we can't stop conventional agriculture just dead it has to go through a slow transition so implementing different types of practices where we're implementing organic carbon back into the soil we're reducing um, the acidification of soil we're implementing sustainable agricultural practices like crop covers that is really uh huge and then for the people who are interested in natural farming it's people that typically own their own properties because it's such a huge investment to bioremediate something that you don't own right and i think that's the whole point like if we can get the the whole point was of the middle class was to be able to own property right and it became from like owning your own farmland because you could produce something from your own soil you could market it you could bring it to market as your own and support your family and the people who did that well and created great business models also off of a production of a product on their own land i mean that was the american dream right people were built wealth in that fashion and what's happened is the the american agriculture now is dependent on the farmer usually um mortgages all of his property and land to a bank so he can go to big ag to get seeds and fertilizers and replacements for their tractor parts and everything else and they are basically taking a gamble they're taking all the risk and often the reward is so small at the end of it because the ag is subsidized or they have to sell their crop to one company um, and they're getting for the same company that sold them their seeds and their fertilizer and everything else so uh, with cannabis, it's different because we have these vertically integrated business models. And if you have your own piece of land, you can create your own integrated business model. Whether you're doing things like pepper ferments or if you're, you know, producing your own eggs or you're producing, you know, multiple varieties of squash or you're doing, you know, pounds and pounds of peppers, you know, whatever it is that you're doing. You can do it on your own land and if you can do it naturally with the inputs around you then i encourage it i love that it's it's just that there's not a lot of education and there's a lot of stuff that goes around that i'll straight up call out you know like like there's a lot of people like there's a reason why some systems like k and f isn't scaled for like indoor agriculture you know it's because if you're just making raw inputs from ferments you don't know what the npk values or the micronutrient values you can't gauge those things against data they'll they'll be different every single time and while there's they're good and they're great things for agronomic soils that are already deficient in carbon and nutrition you're going to get a good response maybe in an ag soil so it's great for natural forming when we're talking about soils that are completely depleted like my fucking soil outside it's it's pretty much just sand it's low ec it doesn't hold nutrients it doesn't hold water it does it's it's sand but the only thing that grows in it is grass so what 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 would i have to do to remediate that i have to add a shitload of organic matter to it i have to add in things like gypsum and magnesium sulfate and other things. Now I, it would be so extremely difficult to just take my leaf mulch compost and my pine trimmings from my property to remediate that and to get it to where I could be in production to be able to scale out. So I have enough money to provide for my family. 
independently and and uh, of like government you know without having to rely on somebody else right because when we're talking about natural farming like right now i'm playing a game right i'm playing this game where a lot of times i'm putting on a suit and i'm going to work i'm doing this i'm giving people data i'm giving them results right it's all these manufacturer we have these numbers we have these this hat this has to work right for these things but when we're talking about not being dependent on a paycheck not being dependent on others for your food supply not being uh dependent on your energy resources that's where these types of practices come in and that's where the education is really important but i've heard people say you know uh tablespoon of common soil contains all of the nutrients that you need to feed an acre of corn all you need to do is solubilize it with biology you know and it's like no things like that aren't true and just using certain things like oh i can ferment this and this doesn't necessarily isn't going to necessarily give you the result that you would get when you're actually having data and to do something like that like if i were to go and take all of the waste products bio waste from my from my my property and then do nutrient tests i could say oh cool i have three percent nitrogen two percent phosphorus and one percent or half percent of potassium and i have this much calcium magnesium i could figure out how much of that i would need to put into the soil but mm-hmm. it it's comp it's really complicated because when we're talking right. about crop production there's a lot that goes into it it's not just about Oh, I'm going to throw a ferment on it. Yeah, ferments are going to improve nutrition and health, but is it going to get you to the target level for specific crop nutrition? Right. So, we're, so yeah, so this kind of leads us into a conversation about agronomy and soil balancing theory. Um, I know that you're, you know, really into like soil balancing stuff and like kind of meticulously crafting your soil. Um, do you follow like the the Albrecht soil balancing theory um, specifically, or do you have a different take on it? Well, I, I didn't study agronomy in college. I didn't go, you know, I'm not certified. I don't have a degree in any of this stuff. It's all based off of the experience and the programs that I put together. I read massive amounts and I've taught myself all how to balance soil uh, nutrition. And so uh, all, but everything I do is based off of lab tests, right? So I'm looking at the total percentage of like if I'm looking at a, a standard soil test, uh, there's specific things that I want to know on that test. One is going to be high or low EC, right? Because that's going to get determine what type of soil this is and how I should proceed. Because modified growing mixes, living soil systems that are typically used for cultivation of cannabis are different than agronomic outdoor soils. So they're going to function differently because based off of the carbon content, the the nitrogen release and a bunch of other factors right mm-hmm. and then i'm also looking at what's falling into solution so if i'm looking at an ag an agricultural soil um, and i'm looking at the total available ppm of total salts i don't need to have something that's outrageously high it's it's you know maybe like a third of what i would see in a modified growing mix and it's because it it just functions differently outdoors Mm-hmm. Um, but it's all about nutrient balancing and I don't take that same approach, but what I'm doing is I'm looking at, you know, what collectively is overall in the soil, how that soil falls into solution, the solution, 
And then how much of what's falling into solution is, is making it into tissue as a total percentage. And since we have, you know, data and research from decades of what those targets should look like for specific crops, whether it's cannabis, hemp, um, tomatoes, cucumbers, zucchini, I can look at those numbers and I can adjust different targets based off of the, the data. So being uh, like, I don't need to be an expert in, let's say, cucumbers, right? Because the data for cucumbers exists for how much nitrogen, how much phosphorus, how much potassium, calcium, magnesium. And as long as I'm falling within those ranges, when we're testing, when I'm taking a soil sample and say, hey, something is deficient, as long as I'm giving the right recommendation on, on with the right element of what needs to be placed there, we'll know we'll get to that sufficient level for that specific crop. So agronomy is, you know, we're looking at, uh, you know, our base cations, which is what you were just talking about, calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium. We want to see about 60 to 70% of our base saturation calcium for cannabis, 12 to 15% magnesium, and then about uh, four to 8% potassium. Sodium low as possible. Sodium is antagonistic to the other soil cations and the plant doesn't really need as much uh, sodium as you would think it's very very low a negligible amount it's not really even considered a plant nutrient so it's antagonistic to those things although some plants will just take in ions um, regardless of what they are depending on what's happening within the soil um so so i'm really big into soil building um and I follow, you know, all, all the science and, you know, trying to balance soil and all these ratios based on the cation exchange capacity and stuff. Um, and I do these calculations, you know, based off of, you know, the atomic weights of, of the, the elements, the ions. Um, and I find that sometimes my phosphorus levels, you know, while I calculated my phosphorus to be equal to my potassium, um, my phosphorus doesn't show up as high, um, like when I do my soil testing. Um, do you believe that this possibly because of their, it's not being solubilized properly by, you know, enzymes or microorganisms? Yeah, because you're calculating phosphorus. That's, that's the issue is you're not calculating the phosphate because you can put in uh, an amendment that has 20% phosphorus in it, but the solubility and the amount of phosphate that's actually available is, is far more low. And the reason why that is, is because if we're looking at phosphorus from a chemistry and from a physics standpoint, that that molecule, that anion is super highly reactive. It doesn't really exist freely in nature for very long. And the reason why the plant can actually observe it into the plant through diffusion is because when um, when it is enzymatically uh, when it enzymatically becomes available through the production of a phosphatase enzyme in the rhizosphere, it can, it can diffuse across the cellular membranes. Typically, if that's happening and you're having a microorganism solubilize uh, phos uh, the, the um, phosphorus anion from the parent appetite material, it's going to do one of two things is typically in a higher pH system, it's going to bind with calcium or magnesium. And then a lower pH is going to bind with iron, zinc, aluminum, 
or any of the uh, micronutrient cations. It's just such a highly reactive molecule that it binds with other things and then it requires these enzymatic processes that are highly metabolically uh, mediated by uh, bacteria and fungi to resolubilize those. So um, if we're talking about the mole uh, amount of, of phosphate that is in solution that is soluble phosphate, um, it's different from the amount that you're actually putting into the soil system. I hope that answers your question. No, it does. But how does, how do you, how do you account for that? How do you move forward through that problem? Well, for me, I look at data. So as long as I'm maintaining a certain level and I've seen, and here's the thing, let's say my target PPM for phosphorus on a saturated paste is four PPM right? You could go all the way down to 0.5 PPM and still have great harvesting yields. It's about the biological availability. So I'll see, I'll see, let's say a standard soil test, maybe be at 2,500 parts, uh, uh, pounds per acre. And that's a, a lot of phosphorus just sitting in soil. And then I might only see, uh, half of a PPM that's actually falling in solution. So we need to figure out why only that amount is, is falling into solution. And again, and a lot of the times it's, um, it's, it equates to cation exchange capacity, the amount of organic matter, because most of our organic matter and most of our clay colloid surfaces have a negative charge. So things like nitrate and phosphate and sulfate won't attach to them and hold them for them to be available. They'll just leach out or they'll become available to react with other uh, molecules in the soil system. Now, when, um, sorry, I got off track. I uh, lost my train of thought. No, you're good. The, the, uh, the phosphorus is, is, um, might only be showing a small percentage, but it's, but it's because, if it's only, let's say, it's only showing one pp, uh, half a ppm in total solution. If your organic content is high, they might be taking in additional things like amino acids, right? Because amino acids will actually be catabolized in the plant to release ATP, which is what the plant needs that phosphorus for to begin with. So there's other types of biochemical processes that are happening within that plant that are, are going to allow for uh, energy metabolism to take place. Now, um, as long as you have a consistent supply, that's the biggest thing. So if we're starting off and we're like, oh, we have a huge solubility, we have eight PPM of total soluble phosphate in solution. We're going to assume that that is enough to get it through the whole entire cycle. Uh, thinking from a nutritional perspective, that's enough. We don't need it to be really high. We just need a sufficient amount. And the thing is, because the way that we think about phosphorus is phosphorus is not just only needed by the plant, but it's ne needed for a bunch of biologically mediated processes that happens with biology that fuel a lot of these biochemical processes. It's needed for lipid and fat protein metabolism. It's also needed for uh, adenosine triphosphate uh, production, which is the energy exchange currency for all biological processes. So anytime something requires energy from a cell, it, it gets that energy from ATP. Now, so we need a consistent supply. It's kind of like the gas in a vehicle. Uh, you don't need to have your gas 
always on on full to be able to get to your destination, right? You might fill it up to get to your destination, and that's what we're talking about when you have a lot of solubility in the very beginning, and that might drop off as it's reacting and it's being taken up. But you can go at half the tank. You can still go all the way when the needle is at E, as long as it just stays there and doesn't get and doesn't completely run out of gas. When it completely run at, runs out of gas, that's when you start experiencing issues with energy metabolism and enzyme production and you know root growth and a lot of other things that are associated with phosphorus deficiencies so for um phosphorus solubilization in her case what is your recommendation like for biological crop steering or helping unlock this and keeping it accessible because phosphorus is so tightly bound and can be stuck in the soil so you like you're saying you can have a lot there but it's not available it's not doing its job so what are your recommendations to get it there to get it available to keep it going Part of my program is a bi-weekly inoculation with that microbe plus, which is that consortium of Bacillus, Pseudomonas, and Saccharomyces. That combination, several different species of Bacillus, including the Bacillus subtilis, the right up Pseudomonas palustris, and the Saccharomyces cerevisiae. So I do bi-weekly inoculations with this, and that helps with nutrient cycling. It doesn't just help with phosphorus solubilization, it also helps alkene pathogens. It also helps with other micronutrient uptake. And I've seen huge results with uh, the uptake of manganese. Manganese and phosphorus were the two most notable things when we we're looking at data and the solubilization of those nutrients with inoculated versus uninoculated controls. And manganese is really important because when you're transitioning from vegetative into your reproductive cycle like iron is more of a vegetative nutrient it's more of a it's a photosynthetic nutrient and that manganese is more of a reproductive and so when you can kind of increase that manganese during that transition you're going to have a faster onset of flower you're going to have a faster finishing time and you're going to have better overall production given some other things, but it's one of the things that you can do is like, if I'm looking at a saturated pace test and I want, you know, one PP, half a PPM to one PPM of iron. And I'm usually looking at about 0.2 PPM of manganese. If I jack up that manganese PPM up to uh, half a PPM with, with iron, I see a notable difference on the onset of flowering and the finishing time of that cultivar. It is one of these nuances that you can see uh, in agronomy with uh, when you're looking at plant nutrition and plant response that are based off of uh, nutrition or uh, biology. Um, someone's asking, how do you move your manganese up into, into flower? Um, how are you increasing those levels? Is that introducing top dressing and veg or what are you doing to get those levels higher? So for all of my micronutrients, I like to use micronutrient sulfates because they're uh, soluble and they're easy to distribute in solution. So you can either do uh, applications where you're spraying the, the surface of your soil or you can put them into solution. I like to use a humic and fulvic acid before I add uh, micronutrient sulfate and that'll help them uh, stay in a bioavailable form especially things like iron and manganese, because those will oxidize. 
And so if you have that humic and fulvic acid, they can help with, but here's another thing about humic and fulvic acid. I talked about this. There's a mo most people are buying snake oil when it comes to humic and fulvic acid because what they're buying is um, leonardonite or they 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 might be buying lignite, which is uh, organic mineral or organic material matter that has been mineralized in the ground for like eons, for millions of years, right? So we had all these old growth canopies covering mass, mass portions of the earth and that's where we get oil reserves coal lignite leonardonite it's basically mineralized organic matter so this organic matter contains things like iron manganese zinc micronutrients sulfur nitrogen potassium and phosphorus but most people what companies are doing is they're getting that leonardonite and then they're just either micronizing it or putting it into bits and they're calling it humic or fulvic acid what happens is within this mineralized organic matter there are these functional carbon groups there are other chemical groups as well um there's esters there's esters there's um there's all these different types of like groupings of hydrocarbon compounds because that's what these are made out of oxygen hydrogen uh carbon and then like you know maybe nitrogen groupings or uh, phosphorus groupings or whatever they are but there's a grouping called a, a carboxylic acid and that's what makes humic and fulvic acids right and to be able to get pure humic and fulvic acid you have to be able to extract that from that material so it has to be stabilized and reactive and there's only i think one other company in the u.s that is doing stabilized uh humic and fulvic acids where they're micronizing it they're introducing a catalyst to where all the humane all the crap drops out to the bottom and they're able to take the humic and the the humic acid and the fulvic acid layers and separate those into two to, into humic and fulvic acid products because if you're buying like a granular or something like that you're getting all of the bullshit that goes with it it's not necessarily just humic and fulvic acid so when i'm talking about adding in a humic and fulvic acid product to your solution before you add in a micronutrient sul uh, sulfate so you have a better delivery and efficacy mechanism. I'm talking about pure, like pure humic and fulvic acids, not the bullshit that is mostly being distributed on the market to unassuming uh, cultivators, people who don't know. That's awesome. So I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Um, so, you know, humic fulvic acid has... Uh, you know, it's a, a negative charge, right? It, it increases, you know, your, your cation exchange capacity and stuff. Do you think over time adding a whole bunch of humates is going to uh, increase your cation exchange capacity and, and like uh, change the, the proportions of nutrients that you need to add? Well, they have uh, positively charged sites as well. That's the benefit of these compounds is because they're very stable. They, they are very hard to be broken down or solubilized through enzymatic uh, metabolite production through from the uh, microbes in the soil and so they're stable as um, they're stable as organic matter matter constituents and they both hold negative and positive charges that can hold on to both anions and cations uh, that's one of the benefits of those things and when when we're talking about organic matter that can act as um sites to hold on to anions that's great because that's going to prevent things like leaching of nitrates le leaching of phosphates which are a huge problem in eco-agricultural systems 
So it's a net positive. And when you add those in, not only that, but you're proliferating, you're going to be able to proliferate the biology as well, because you're, you're increasing soil carbon. Again, you're holding more nutrients. Those nutrients are not only being used by the plant, but they're being used by the microorganisms as well, because every microorganism needs nitrogen to build amino acids and proteins and chlorophyll if they're a photosynthetic microorganism. And then every organism needs to build, you know, structural components, lipids and fats, and they all need uh, ATP for energy. Um, and so all organisms, all life require those things. And so the more abundance that you have, the better it's going to be. And then there's one thing that we haven't even talked about, which is um, internal charge balance, because the majority of the um, ions that the plant takes up are positively charged. When we're talking about calcium, magnesium, ammonium, uh, uh, did I say magnesium, potassium, calcium, the, the major ones, and then also things like iron, zinc, manganese, and copper, those are all positively charged. And the plant has to create this like internal homeostasis within its sap and its cellular compartments because you have all these oxidation and redox potentials that are mediated by the amount of charge that's in that plant and so when the plant has a uh, better availability to negatively charged anions like the phosphate and nitrate and silica those things are able to help balance charge and it makes it so that you create more homeostasis within the 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 electrical fields, I guess you could say of those plants, the electrical conductivity and, and the way those things process metabolically, uh, oxygen and hydrogen and, 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 uh, interact chemically internally. So we have a whole bunch of questions that has been so much information. Thank you so much, Brandon. Um, we are running a little, I, low you know time. what it is? It's this deviant. It's got all that limonene and pinene in it. ATG <laughs> acres, my boy. Out in Oklahoma, small craft grow. He's grow, always growing fire, dude, and it always got me on point. <laughs> so, shout out to HG. Good, good. Um, Are you cool with answering some questions from the audience? Yeah, well, let's uh, do uh, the last part Q&A, and then I'm going to sign off. It's getting it's getting late. And yep, sounds good. My lady's waiting. Okay, yeah, we'll wrap it up. Celebration song. Pretty much. You okay, have to so read it off, Luna, so that oh, you, um, to read you go to podcast I'm software that they can hear you read it off so they know what yeah. the question is. All right, I'll read it. So the ratios don't mean much. Would a volumetric ratio work better than an organism counting ratio? So when, I if think he's this talking is a reference about to fungal to bacteria. This is when yes. you're talking about fungal to bacteria. Yeah. Um, so I think it would be really... I don't think it matters. I think what really matters is the types of carbon that we put in soil is going to proliferate different types of microbes, whether it's fungi or bacteria. More complex um, carbon inputs are going to proliferate more complex organisms and then uh, things that can break down less complex organic matter are going to proliferate in the situation where you have those in the soil. So it's all about kind of what's in there from the feed on hydrology pH makes a big difference. So there's all these different types of interactions, but when we're looking at data, 
we're not so much looking at the biomass ratio. I want to, if we were going to count anything, it would be, it would be the production metabolite production, just like we test cannabis for its THC, it's CBN, or I guess not CBN because that's oxidized THC. So that would be kind of after it would be aged a little bit, but CBD and then the terpene uh, content, we're, we're gauging those and that's metabolite production because those are the things that are important. Those are the things that are causing biochemical reactions in nature that are causing an actual effect, right? And so that's what we would be measuring. I don't care about fungal or bacterial dominance. There's nothing in literature. I don't read anything about my in that my in my soil agronomy or my biochem books, my organic chemistry books. There's no mention of that stuff. So I don't pay attention to it. What I'm looking at as specific results based off of data that isn't just anecdotal. I love seeing healthy great plants. And when I have something that can correlate it to data, that's what we're looking at. And so in the case of something like iron soluble solubility or phosphorus solubility, we're really looking at the application rate of these organisms and then being able to replicate that data. Okay. Awesome. Great answer. Any isopod controls like for too many roly polies? I don't ever really see a lot of isopods chilling in my beds, but there are all kinds of things that you can do. Uh, you can inoculate your your soil with entomopathogenic fungus. There's nematodes. There's bait traps. There's all kinds of stuff. Uh, again, it's good to see life proliferating. We like to see compost mites and things breaking down the organic matter, but typically in most soils, we're not seeing an overabundance of one thing. If we are like seeing a massive proliferation of springtails to the where point where someone's going on, Oh my God. And they're freaking out. Cause they don't know what they, what they're seeing. Uh, it's just because there's too much organic matter and really moist conditions. Now those things are going to balance themselves out given that they don't continue to add a bunch of organic matter and keep it really moist but you can see that's a really good example of if you're seeing too much of one thing it means that that system's probably not in balance maybe you're adding too much of one thing maybe there's a bunch of organisms that are looking for a food source and you need to actually introduce something into that system that's going to uh, alleviate that problem through you know, pesticide or pesticide deterrent where those things are not going to that area anymore or adding an organism that's going to feed on those. It's, there's just a bunch of different ways you have to take, you know, look at it kind of holistically, but I don't want to see those things in my indoor systems mainly because I don't think we really bring them and introduce them. And then we have a lot of biocontrol type of organisms, model organisms that are just going to kind of, alleviate that issue so would epsom salt as a magnesium amendment be bad from a sodium perspective it doesn't have sodium in it see this is a there's a big confusion about what a salt is so salts aren't necessarily bad the reason why we, we would say like a synthetic isn't isn't great is because it the energy that went into the production of that doesn't um it doesn't i guess ha it doesn't have a great enough use efficiency 
to really be effective to long-term thinking, especially when we're limited on phosphorus reserves. We have like 60 years less left of phosphorus. And so what a salt is, is it a, is it, uh, it's two different anions, a positively charged and a negatively charged anion that is covalently bonded together, weakly covalently bonded together, that is soluble in solution. And so what happens is when you put something like Epsom salt, which is magnesium sulfate into solution, it doesn't contain any sodium. It's magnesium, a positively charged ion and, and sulfate, a negatively charged ion that disassociates from each other, creating a solution of both positively charged magnesium and negatively charged uh, sulfate ions, both metabolically plant available minerals that the plant can now observe in the, in that form. So a salt doesn't necessarily mean bad. The reason why we would say synthetic salt isn't good is because the highly reactive nature of that salt and how it's going to react in, in a solution with other elements. And then in the soil with other elements, how they tie them up, how they don't stick to organic matters and they leach into our waterways. When you have uh, usually organic sources of phosphorus they're going to be usually tied up in something like calcium or in uh, a meal and it's not going to be so soluble which means it's not going to readily leach out into soil systems and it's going to have to be kind of mediated through biology great explanation manganese Next question. You can. Um, when we're talking about foiler sprays, though, we want to start with good, clean water that's low in things like sodium chloride, bicarbonate, or other mineral elements. So typically distilled RO water is really great for foiler applications. And in any instance, when you're adding a micronutrient sulfate to add as a foiler application, I recommend that you use humic and fulvic acids to increase the efficacy simply because of the oxidation potentials of those nutrient sulfates, those micronutrient sulfates. I know someone had asked, do you offer a fulvic humic product on your website? So we have the smart carbon, which is a reacted stabilized uh, humic fulvic acid product, but it is not just humic and fulvic acid. It is a complete fertilizer program. It contains all of the essential macro, secondary, and micronutrients that plants need for growth while also offering carbon. So it acts as a biostimulate to help proliferate the microbiome of the soil. It aids in water retention, and it also helps to make new soils because when you have the proliferation of microbiology they can solubilize unsolubilize minerals that are the parent appetite material in those soils making them plant available plant available okay cool so what do you think about electroculture i'm not going to answer that <laughs> okay. what about freshwater derived humates and fulvics I'm not sure what what he's re referring to yeah, exactly. I I'm not familiar with freshwater um, humic and fulvics. I've never heard of that either. You got this one, Alex? Sure. Are the nutrient levels in food crops a direct analogy to cannabinoids? I think he means levels in cannabis. Yeah. Do the same plant newts that produce human nutrition in food produce better wheat? 
Okay, so when we're thinking about what a cannabinoid or a terpene is, we're talking about a hydro, we're talking about an organic compound, a hydrocarbon. And so the whole, the plant's whole purpose is to uh, sequester mineral elements to combine carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen into complex uh, sugars for energy, metabolism, and reproduction. And they feed and build all of their structural components using these complex carbohydrates that they are manufacturing internally in these factories. Uh, those are uh, like cannabinoids, uh, amino acids, proteins. When you have soil that contains a large amount of mineral nutrition, that mineral nutrition will get into the, the, the produce as well. And then when we ingest that, <clears throat> our cells are then fertilized because when our nutrition that we eat in our bodies are being broken down enzymatically through uh, our, our, our gut microbiome, and then we are fertilizing our cells, just like we're fertilizing the cells in a plant. We're not actually feeding the plant biomass. We're feeding these microscopic things inside the plant that are essentially little factories for the production of organic carbon compounds, most of which are exuded through the plant roots to change the environment so they can uptake more minerals, proliferate biology to get the things that they need so they can reproduce. So it's a really, really complicated uh, question, but essentially the mineral elements that we that we get will come from our food and if our food only contains complex carbohydrates and no uh, proteins amino acids and minerals then we're basically just consuming carbs like corn and all the stuff that comes with that, that types you know or so um every every crop Brandon, that, that was all the questions ladies so just uh you can go from here awesome Cool. Uh, thank you so much, Brandon. That was a fantastic show. Uh, really appreciate you coming on here and, and dumping all this information on everyone and taking time out of your day to, to be here with us. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm definitely going to be putting in an order with you and grabbing some of your stuff. I'll make some posts, share it on Instagram, get you out there because I love what you're doing. I love the science behind it um, and the understanding that's going into everything. So thank you. And yeah, you have your link for discount in the description as well, guys. So you can use uh, the Queen of the Sun Grown's link in the description to buy Brandon's product. Yeah, so you can use that link. And then there's also a code. You can use code CLUTCH and it will give everybody 10% off too. Sweet. Cool. Coming in, CLUTCH. Yep. Right on. Cool. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Have a great night. Uh, we'll do it again soon. And uh, make sure that if you're not following, you can go to Russ.Brandon, just like on the bottom screen right there and uh, on IG, and you can get educated. I've been doing a lot more content. So, awesome. Yes, follow him, everybody. It's great. Thanks so I'll much. Have a great day. Bye. Thank you. Good night. Well, that Ooh. was fun. I like that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hello, Ken. Goodbye, Ken. I know. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot. That was great. Um, yes, it's really interesting, you know, his uh, uh, microbial crop steering, it's almost like a me metabolite crop steering, you know, mm -hmm. it's like yeah. using the, the compounds that release the nutrients, not so much. Um, well, I mean, he's introducing the, the biology too, but it's like the metabolites produced by the biology that are like the really crucial component. Because um, a lot of that stuff that he's using is in 
soils it's going to be in our soils it's going to be in our earthworm castings and stuff but um you know is it producing the concentrations necessary to to uh, make these forms of nutrients readily available so it's like pumping them with the metabolites from those those forms of biology which i find to be really interesting um because you know bacillus subtilis is is in like earthworm castings it's in a lot of different stuff it's all it's all there a lot of the things that he mentioned are most likely going to be in our soils already mm -hmm. um, but is it there in the concentrations producing the metabolites necessary to, to do what we want them to do? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like he's like verifying it with data, like testing and seeing that if you pump it full of this, that it's going to produce these secondary metabolites, these enzymes, and it's going to um, release it in whatever form. I'm curious to see who he's testing with and how I want to know this behind like the, the sprouted seed teas and the barleys and the corn and the things that we're using um, right. for those same secondary metabolites that we can use to mm -hmm. solubilize our nutrients without using, you know, specific microorganisms. But it's just so fascinating. There's so many different ways to skin a cat, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Um, and like he, yeah, we didn't get the details of like how, how much and how often. Um, I know, I know. But, uh, well, now that we've had like picked his brain, we'll have to do like another um, episode with him later. And now we'll be prepared for like, okay, your... let's bring the data. I want to see these yeah. numbers and let's see the tests and let's go through it and review it. And like, yeah, that's what I'm curious about the numbers. Cause you know, I mean, statistics can skew things, but numbers typically don't lie. Yeah. Sweet. Sweet. Yay. And then next week we're doing some show with like a lady or a man. I don't know. Who's... <laughs> a, a lady, Leah Oram, and okay. she actually uh, has a human convolvic product. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So Sweet. I wonder if she's using, uh, if her product is what it's based from. We're going to hear Leonardite or... <laughs> and then... <laughs> No, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. That'll we'll be a good talk. To, that'll be a good talk to follow up this conversation too. So. Yes, definitely. And I want to get Kimmy on here soon too. Yes, Kimmy, you hear that? If you're still listening, we want you. Yeah. We love you. <laughs> awesome. Well, I look forward to seeing you next Thursday. You know, I'll be chatting with you up on Instagram. You guys, everybody, hit us up. Follow our Patreons, our Instagram. Subscribe, like, support, so we can bring more awesome education yeah thank you so much everyone see okay, you next guys week. yeah i'll end it there so everybody peace out